First Samuel chapter 19. We see an interesting and continued road, but interesting development in the transfer of leadership, transfer of, a, of two men, one that God allowed to be in a position, anointed him for that position. But that man chose, even though through that experience, it wasn't a life-changing experience. It was just an, a religious anointing experience. And we're going to see now a pursuit of the king. The transferring of, a continued of that transfer, I should say, of that leadership to that new anointed king that God has selected, God has anointed, God has appointed, and in preparing for a time to him to actual lead. But in that transition, the one that King Saul, who chose not to walk with God, is now, we are going to see a jealous rage coming from him continuously from the last chapter into this chapter, which will cause a pursuit after the king that we will see is David in the making. Every experience that we have in life will bring about change or it will not. And what we want to do as children of God to is allow, when God allows things in our lives, to allow those situations and circumstances and experiences to draw us closer to God, to pursue our heavenly king more and more each and every day through those experiences that it would not cause us to be a Saul, but be uh, more of a David in regards to being a, our hearts after, after God. And we see in 1 Samuel chapter 19, the very first part of that verse 1, notice here, now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Now after what? Now what? I mean, so we just, again, if you look in chapter 18, verse 30, and even 29, we see the fact that God is using David it brings out a very clear sign. Saul is realizing and struggling more and more with jealousy, but becoming more and more afraid of David. So he becomes David's enemy. David never looked at Saul as being his enemy. He just had a spear thrown at him to pin him to the wall. But God got him out. He just had David marry his daughter, Michal. You would think all these things would start working themselves out, even after the princes of the Philistines were out at war. So it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely. He had a son-in-law who was so wise. You would think he would be so excited. But even with all the benefits, all the goodness, everything that's coming with having now David as a, as a son-in-law, as David is a, leading his army and as a warrior, and God's blessing him and wisdom and all these things, you would think he would be the happiest guy. Not with jealousy and bitterness and anger and all these things that have settled in his heart. None of the goodness, he doesn't see any of that. He looks past all the benefits, all the goodness of David in their life and just focusing on his own life and he realizes he's losing control over everything. And that has brought us here in chapter 19, verse 1, where we see that now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and, all, and to all his servants that they should kill David. 
It's no longer inside the head anymore. <laughs> the outward signs were showing, right? David threw a spear at David. That shows something going from the heart here. And all he was talking, there's signs there. Now he's coming right out blatantly and to his son and to his servants as whoever finds David, you need to kill him. Because why? Why does he want him killed? Because he's threatened. He's afraid of David. This jealousy of rage by Saul will always lead to wanting to kill. That's, uh, that's the, the spiraling down. That's why you can't have jealousy. You can't have these, uh, these, uh, these, these, these angers and all these things against someone because the, the enemy will have a field day taking you down that road. It will ultimately lead to how do I destroy that man or that woman you're jealous or angry with. Remember, we too have an enemy who targets us as believers every day. Because he does not want us to influence others in our lives for Christ. And when you are on fire for Christ, you're going to have the enemy try to stop you. Why? Because Satan and his demonic forces are jealous. Yes, jealous of you. Of what God is doing in and through your life to reach those who they have a, that Satan has a hold of, who's going to hell, and you're coming in, and God's going to use you and empower you with His Spirit to reach the lost, and the, and the enemy's not going to like it. When you're influencing others to leave the kingdom of death, and the, that kingdom of darkness, that kingdom of condemnation, and you're leading these people to God's kingdom of love and light and, and, uh, and, and salvation. Expect the enemy is going to come after you. In your brain, in your mind, he's going to come after you. And physically, he can actually send someone like a Saul to try to come and pin you against the wall. But we have God on our side. No weapon can be formed against us. It's going to prosper at all against us. We're children of God. We walk in that security of him. And as power as our adversary, how powerful, powerful as our adversary is, this chapter will show us that God will protect us in the same four ways he protected David in this chapter. Look at what the scripture says here. As he's reaching out to Jonathan, why would he tell Jonathan this, this, this heart of his that he wants to kill David and he wants them to kill David? He put Jonathan in a very difficult place. Dad, Saul, knows that Jonathan loved David. They were like-minded. They, 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 they were like, you, there was no question. There was a, obvious, everyone could tell. They were knitted together in a way that it was just a friendship you're not going to break. So why would, David, why would Saul tell Jonathan, who loved David, that he wanted someone to kill David? Well, because Saul, I believe, wanted Jonathan to warn David. If you know someone knows and there's a close relationship, he doesn't say in here, I don't want you to tell, I don't want you to tell David, but I'm telling you right now, you and, your, and my service, go find David and kill him. He didn't say that. He told him that. Why? Because I believe he wanted David to hear that what he really wanted to do was kill him. Why? Because I believe he was hoping that David would flee. He would walk away from everything, walk away, disappear, and never come back through pressure and manipulation, threatening to get him to make a decision to leave. Clearly, Saul had no clue that God was orchestrating the steps of, of David. This wasn't David's decision to, to, to be able to do what he's doing. This was God working through him to do what he was doing. So this manipulation, this coercion, this threats were not going to affect, but he didn't know that, so he told Jonathan and his servants, I want you to go out there and I want you to, to, to tell him that King Saul wants to kill you. I mean, Jonathan had a sealed a covenant with David. We saw back in chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Jonathan knew David was 
destined to be the next king. Even Jonathan was officially the crown prince at this point. He was going to be crowned. He was on that next line. But Jonathan knew what God was doing in David's life. Told the servants, because obviously servants will do whatever the king wants them to do. But remember, in chapter 18, verse 5, we see that these servants are also in a difficult place because these servants loved David. So the people loved David. Jonathan loved David. But here's King Saul telling these guys that he's going to die. That's why I believe he knew that they weren't going to kill David. Maybe someone in the, you know, will, will give in and, and, and try to do it. But he was just trying to get push David out with, through pressure. Because he put him in a very difficult place. And obviously, not only did Saul put Jonathan in a difficult place and, and, and his servants in a difficult place, but look, he put David in a difficult place. Who can David trust? He's in there serving and, and doing in the kingdom. Who is he going to trust? Can I trust Jonathan? Can I trust the servants? Can, I, can you imagine waking up and not being able to trust anybody that's around you? How insecure that can make you. But with God, you can be very secure. He's for you who can be against you. Verse, the last part of verse 1. But Jonathan, there's a good but there. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. So without a doubt, again, I think it's playing out nicely here. And Saul thinks that he's in control. But again, God knew what was going to play out here. And, and, and it's going to use this to bring clarity to David. How bad, if David had any doubt that what the king thought about him, his father-in-law, he clearly now knows. And so what are you going to do now, David? And sure enough, Jonathan did go there to try to talk to his father. Told David this is what the objective is that from his father. There was no, no question about it. Jonathan knew he did right. He knew he should, dad should not be killing David. Or he shouldn't kill David, or any of the servants shouldn't kill. He knew what was right. Jonathan was a right, a righteous man here. Jonathan knew the Bible, Exodus twenty verse thirteen: "You shall not murder." He knew the commandments, but his father's asking him to, to break one of the commandments. The Bible is very clear, and Saul was on record as saying that he that they should kill David. But Saul, you, Dad, you know that that's against God's law. Why would you ask me to do that? We're under the authority and the commandment that's submitted by God's order of authority. I, we can't do that. God is a God of order and he sets things in order to have these lines of authority. We see it very clearly in the Bible. The authority between parents and children. The parents are to have authority over the, of the children. Citizens are to, to obey, as long as it doesn't conflict with the word of God, the government. If you're an employee or an employer, you understand that relationship. The employees don't run the employer. Their employer oversees has the authority over the employees. Even Christians to their church leadership, there's a, a, a role of authority. There's wives to their husbands. But in all of these relationships, we are never excused from sin because we obeyed an authoritative person. You are not to go against God's word, even with a person who's in a, a, of authority over you. 
So it would be wrong for Jonathan to obey his father and kill David. It's just like when you take us back into Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where the apostles were told by the government to stop preaching the gospel. And what was their response there? We ought to obey God rather than men. Jonathan had a heart of, the, of an apostle. Those apostles were beaten heavily. Heavily, heavily, heavily. I mean, just beaten almost, you know, to, to beyond. And most people would run, but they didn't. They were just going to continue to go forward even after suffering. They're going to do what is right before God. Why? Because they found that beating from man in obedience because of their obedience to God was clearly rejoicing in the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name, we see in Acts 5, verses 40 and 41. And so here we find that Jonathan also had the right heart, a heart after God and was willing to take his hits for obeying God, and he did not whine about it. Jonathan did more than just refuse to not kill David. He actually went out and helped David, warned David. As hard as he realized it was going to be, and a dear friend, a, a close friend, that you, he realized the value he needed to, to run and to, to, to do and hide and do something to see where my father really's heart is here. Maybe I can convince him and change his heart. Maybe he'll look at it differently. He didn't take a neutral position and say, okay, it's my dad. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to stand there and watch, see how this is going to play out. But I'm not the one killing it, but we'll just let everything play out in front of me. Maybe some of the other servants will take care of this, and I can say my hands are clean on this. No, no, no. He understood that what was wrong, and he was going to try to keep his father from making that mistake. Why do we see that? Look at verse 4. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. So that was the first attempt. He was talking David up. Dad, are you sure? <laughs> He's just talking him up. He's talking to him to make sure Dad understands here. What did he say? He said to him, let not the king sin against his servant, against David. Because he has not sinned against you. That's the first thing. First of all, he didn't sin against you. I don't know why you're coming after him. And because his works have been very good towards you. Remember what he accomplished. It benefited you and the nation of Israel. For he took his life in his hand and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it. You and he rejoiced about it. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So his approach to bring light to his foolishness, wickedness, he brought to light the fact that David has been loyal. David's been there serving. Remember, he played the harp for you to calm your soul. Remember, he took out Goliath to help the nation and no one else was stepping up. He stepped up. He hasn't sinned against you, hasn't gone against you, he hasn't done anything of these things. Why are you against innocent blood? So he didn't just secretly help David. He came to dad and, and the king saw and, uh, and boldly stood there knowing he could lose his own life going against the king. Just because dad doesn't mean he's not going to. He, that is king now. That's a king position. It doesn't matter if you're son, you could still die. Why? Because Jonathan said in his mind, I believe he's sitting there going, I think you've got something wrong in your mind there, Dad. Because, Saul, I don't think you really understand what you're saying and thinking because you have an opinion about David that's just not accurate. It's just not true. 
I mean, it took a lot of courage, don't you think, for Jonathan to step up in front of the king? He could just just warn David, said, go running, man, go run fast. Hope to see you again in the future, but go, go run. And then did nothing, not address the issue at all. But he was bold enough to tell the truth. And do it so factual and loving because he just presented the truth in front of King Saul. Why is your anger, what's your jealousy and anger based upon against Dave, David? It's not sin. What you're saying to kill him, that is sin. He hasn't sinned against you. Now you want to sin against him. But in his mind, Saul thinks he's, David sinned against him. In some manner, somehow how he felt this, this it, it was righteous to kill this man. For, in his mind, he has created, he was squirrely, he created things in his mind that were just not true. And it should be a warning for all of us not to be very careful what you ponder on and make sure it's what you're pondering on about someone else and you're starting to get jealousy or angry or all the emotions. Be very careful to make sure that it is based upon fact, truth. And as a Christian person, how do you deal with someone who comes against you? To show grace. You've been showing so much grace, you are to show grace. Have mercy, but you've been shown mercy. Vengeance is never on our, our hands. God will take care of the situation. Saul knew all this about David. Knew that he killed the Philistine. Played the harp to help him with his soul. Was there and conquered many times. Was always there available. And Jonathan was trying to get his Saul's perspective, wrong perspective, to change to a right perspective so that it could change that course of jealous desire to murder David and get that off and out of his mind. To bring, John, to bring Saul back to reality. Remember, you saw it with your own eyes. You rejoiced. Why are you now going against David? You know, it's almost like, you know, Satan has filled your mind with envy and jealousy and all this anger. You need to reset. Go back to how you th thought before when you were just excited about this young man, David, who came in and comforted you and, and protected and, and conquered and helped all these. Go back to the reset. Go back to what is truth. See, because in Saul's mind, people, even people can literally create things in their minds to give them a cause to justify going against somebody. In his mind, David wasn't innocent. But the truth was, David was an innocent man. There was no cause to kill him. Now look at verse 6. So Saul, how did he respond? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan. He was literally listening to Jonathan. He heard what he said. And Saul swore his response verbally. What was it? As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Seems really straightforward. It looks like there was no question what he meant. The vow was no. As the Lord lives, I'm vowing, I'm making a pledge to the Lord himself that David is not going to get killed now. You would think that's pretty strong. That's really straightforward. Then Jonathan called David. That's how sure that Jonathan was. There was no question in what Dad, King Saul dad said. So common that Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as in times past. 
there appears to be reconciliation between Saul and David. Now when I look at that, I'm not sure if I see reconciliation. You know why I don't see reconciliation? Because Saul did not communicate to David, at least in the words here, a direct David. I was, I was asking people to kill you. I, want your forg- I need your forgiveness. Forgive me. I, 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 I told down a vow and go, Lord, no, no, never, no, you're not to be killed anymore. I just want to make sure, I, you know, I apologize. I, I'm going to bring it right up front. We don't see that. All we see is that Jonathan brought David to Saul and was allowed to be in his presence. There was no records. I mean, it doesn't appear any details here of how their exchange was. But Saul did at least heed the voice of Jonathan. He received the truth. And and it was real humility for Saul at that moment. I mean, he could have been, I am king and whatever I say goes. He could have done that. He didn't. Who do you think you are, son, to tell me? I'm going to take you out just as quickly as anybody else. I, I can't believe you even spoke to me like that. Now, he humbly received and heeded what was going on. So it seems to have all worked out here. The command to kill David was revoked. Saul and David are together again. And as in previous days, everything seems to be just fine. Well, notice here in the verses that the first way we see that God protected David was how? Through a prince. Jonathan, through a prince who pleaded his case to the king. An advocate for David. Jonathan takes to his father about David's situation and he listens. And it says, this all points a far greater prince for you and I. Far greater prince than Jonathan, the prince. The prince of peace, our savior. Jesus Christ, who pleads our case to the king of kings that we see in 1 John 2, 1. That is our prince who comes and will protect you and I from the enemy. So the first way that God protects David was through a prince. David pleading for David on the basis of David's work. He slew, he took out Goliath. Jesus, on the other hand, pleads our case, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his work for us. Father, forgive him because I died for the quarry. I died for that sin. Why? Because our advocate intercedes and pleads with the Father on our behalf, the Prince of Peace, our Savior. Verse 8, And there was a war again, And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow. And they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence. And he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Uh Uh-oh. Things repeat itself. (laughs) King with a spear. David, you should stop playing and you should probably be exiting. But the fact that he's back into the court, court, he's, he's ministering to the king again. I mean, that just, that's just... 
again, the love of David, the heart of David, playing the music to help him to calm down. But that just revved up Saul even more and then tried to pin David to the wall with a spear again. But once again, God get him, was able to get him to slip away from Saul's presence. You see, in context, this speaks of more war between Israel and the Philipp- Philistines. Again, back to the war, really striving and stirring things up in Saul's mind because it triggered him to bring him back to why he was originally angry and jealous of David. Why? Because he could sense this and he would, was probably struggling with the fact that God was using David to be, empower him to do this great work. That God was using his life in a way that he wanted it so badly, but the Spirit had left him. Why? Because God removed himself from that man, Saul. And he could sense, he knew what it was like to have the Spirit of God, and now he doesn't have the Spirit of God, and now he's watching this other man who just, God is using the mighty and empowered, he sees the Spirit on him, and it just brings out the jealousy of what he has lost because of his own mistake. It's so true spiritually, is it not? At the end of uh, verse 7 there of chapter 19, there was a truce in spiritual war involving David and Saul. There seemed to be a reconciliation, a truce. But when it comes to spiritual warfare, whenever we are at times of cease, fire, in the spiritual war, we know the battle will begin again before long. The attacks will come again. It can always be said of our life, and there was a war again. And we can get exhausted, can we not? With the spiritual warfare constantly messing with us, coming against us, especially if you're being used by God and you're taking steps of faith and serving God and, and reaching the lost and, 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 and being used by God. It's just the spirit. If you think you go, oh, everything's going great. It's just a matter of time. The war is going to be coming. Make sure you have your armor of God on every day, because you don't know when the enemy is going to strike. It could catch you by surprise. Here, God is using him to fight once again the Philistines. But that success aroused Saul's jealousy as before. And because of that, he was tempted to be jealous again, and he took it. He took the hook. And of course, the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon him. Because Saul was very vulnerable. You can have a distressing spirit because you become vulnerable when you're open to, up to temptations. And you grab a hold of that hook of temptation and it will take you in and you'll find yourself in spiritual warfare, yes, and you'll also find yourself doing things squirrely in your mind that you shouldn't have never even go down and entertain. See, Saul's in a bad place. <laughs> Mentally, spiritually, physically, and eventually we'll, he is in a bad place. He's tempted and spiritually attacked and now he has to put himself in a potentially sinful situation And here David is trying to play the music to calm him down. And his response is to throw a spear at him while he's playing music. You know, it's interesting. Saul says here he sought to pin David. I mean, if you think about that, he had to really, he wavered, right? He he had a change of heart. I mean, I thought everything was reconciled. I thought everything was dealt with. I thought we forgave. You asked for, you know, did they really forgive each other? I mean, I mean. Did he ask David to forgive him? Did, was it really reconciliation, reconciliation take place? I, I lean the fact that it was not. It was just an acknowledgement, I'm not going to kill you now. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it's like any relationship. If you're not dealing with the core issue and re- truly reconciling and forgiving, it's going to pop back up in that relationship if you haven't truly forgiven. You will bring that up. It will be, it will, it's, it, temptation will happen, the spiritual forward, uh, welfare, 
Spiritual warfare will happen, and it's only a matter of time. If it hasn't been truly reconciled in true forgiveness, it will come popping back up. Just wait for the next trigger moment. In this case, it was a war, but there could be another trigger moment. And unless it's been dealt with, that trigger will turn into back into the rage of anger and the jealousy or rage and all these other things and insecurities and doubts. And we have to be very careful. But in this case, we see that God got David out of Saul's presence as the spear comes winging his way. The one thing that Saul really did need is the person David. He really needed David in his life. The one that is pushing David out the enemy didn't want David to sue this man or even anything. But they needed David, but he was gone now. Saul was a loser on both accounts. He's lost a good man that God was using from every aspect of his life. David, right here in these verses, never returned to the palace until he was the king of Israel some 10 years later. David doesn't come back. From now until the day Saul dies, David lives as a fugitive, hiding, and we will see in the chapters to come. Verse 11, we see the second way that God protects David. It says here in verse 11, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him, and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. So the second way that God has helped, uh, basically protected David is by a bride, his bride, Michal. It appears, if you remember, when Saul Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Saul was conniving. He would say whatever, I guess, whatever he would need to say at the moment in time. So now for the second time, Saul goes back on that oath, and he's now... Asking to send messengers to David's house. Why? Because Saul knew he probably David would head home to see his wife. He knows his wife. It was King Saul's daughter. So that's where he's going. Go find some messengers. Go find him and, uh, and, and watch him. And when you have a great opportunity, kill him in the morning when he wakes up. But God uses Michal to convince his, her husband, David, I know my father. He's not giving up. You got to get out of here, and I'm going to get you out this door, and you got to go. She saved the day. What a conflict of loyalty. Here's my dad about to kill my husband. Should she act on her father's interests or in her husband's interests? Obviously, she made the right choice and supported her husband, David. But Michal was helped by warning David. Why? Maybe she saw the hip men coming. Maybe some friends told her. Whatever it is, she, she kind of knew, David, you cannot be here in the morning. And David listened to his wife. Gentlemen, it's best to listen to your wife. Sometimes men are so hard-headed. None of you men here, of course. So hard-headed that you don't want to hear how God might warn you or me through our lives. But if David would have ignored this warning because he didn't like the source, he might have ended up dead. But as David wisely decided to take the course of action that she recommended 
and was going to help him, he obviously was able to flee and escape. Now, how do what do we what is David what do you think David was thinking at this moment? Your father-in-law, the king, is trying to kill you. Your wife is saying, You gotta you gotta leave. As much as I don't want you to leave, you have to leave, you have to flee. You know where we know his thoughts are? Go back and read Psalm 59. Psalm 59, actually, that psalm, that song unto the Lord found there is a reflection of what he wrote that night or that time frame of when he had to come and flee. Verse 13. So we've seen the fact that he has used a prince. He has used a bride. Now we see in verse 13, as we continue, as Michal took an image and laid it in the bed, but a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a covered of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this and set, me, set my enemy away so that he was, has escaped? And Michal answered and said, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So Michal, the daughter of Saul, is not much farther away from the dad kind of a... The apple didn't fall far from the tree, as they say. Obviously, she was able to deceive and was able to lie. And again, for the benefit of trying to obviously help her husband to get free. But it's the thing that really have to draw attention to is what she used to deceive. She used the image was a teraphim. She took an image, a teraphim, a figurine. It could have been an upper torso portion. It was an idol that you worshipped in your house. And it was large enough to be able to put it in the bed, put some go hair on it, looks like hair, probably stuff some pillows on her to look like his torso and his body, she had an idol in the house. That tells you her relationship with God was not equal to what David's relationship was with God. But David allowed his wife to have idol in the house. There was a problem here. But she used it anyway. She used this ancient Israel teraphim. Why? Because she wanted to make sure that she used something to image a, a body, a person, so that they could pretend he was sick. And then the messengers believed her, didn't even check it out, believed her, went back home, and then Saul said, get back down there. I don't care if he's sick. Pick up the bed and bring him here. I'm going to kill him anyway. And when they found out that it wasn't real, then Saul showed up and said to the daughter, Miguel, why are you de deceiving me like this? Why did you? Why are you? Why are you not? Why are you for me here? So Saul was not taken in by his daughter's deception. He knew his daughter, and plus, it's to Saul's depth of hatred for David because he didn't care if he was sick or not. He was going to die. But notice, it's his enemy. Why did you do this? Why did you send my enemy away? Not my son-in-law away. Not your husband away. But all, it was so fixated on who he's, David was. It was not his son-in-law. It wasn't a, the husband of his daughter. No, it's not the future um, father uh, of, of his grandkids or anything. No, no. All he could see David now when anger and jealousy gets is you're fixated on that negative, in, that, in this case, all you could see is the person's an enemy. 
Saddest words in the passage, is it not? The man that God has used to help him, serve him, this lowest points of his of the spirit of de- just of depression coming upon him, and God used David to help him. Save the nation of, of the king. I mean, God used in trend, and all the saddest thing it is is all they could see is he, all, he could see David as an enemy. Not all the good things that God had used him in his life, all he could see was his enemy. Turned on him. And all he wanted to do is see him gone. But see, God protected David through a bride. Who saved his life. There are men who will ambush you. And Mikkel told her husband to flee. He listened to that because he knew that was going to play out. And it was David's bride who saved his life that night. And it's true, the same true. Who's our bride? The people in the body of Christ are the bride of Christ. They are the ones who will save your life. But you're going to sit there and say, I don't know. I know a lot of people at church, the body of Christ that I fellowship with, they're a lot of really squirrely people. I'm not sure if uh, they're really going to save my life. That's really squirrely people. Have you ever been to my church? And as we know, we are the bride of Christ. We may be a blemished bride, but we are a bride of Christ. Don't forget that. But also don't forget, but God. He takes his bride, you and I. And in God's eyes, because we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, we have been made righteous in our God, our Lord. We're a a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, a holy priesthood, a spotless bride. That is how God sees his bride. We may see the blemishes among ourselves. But God sees a spotless, a priesthood, a holy priesthood, without wrinkle, without spot. Where do you see that? Go back and read when we get to Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. That's how he sees us. Ephesians 5, 27. That's how he sees us. 1 Peter 2, 5. 1 Peter 2, 5. That's how he sees us. See, I've discovered... I am sure, I am absolutely sure you have as well. If you've been saved and in the fellowship and you're sitting here coming on a regular basis as part of the fellowship, you will realize and remember just like I do that when I go through valleys and difficulties and tragedies in my life, the highs and the lows, It's the body of Christ I'm most thankful for to be there for me and with me during those times. God uses his people, the body of Christ, the bride, to help me. And when the enemy is out to destroy me or to destroy you, it's that blemished bride of Christ. You and I are going to be the ones that's going to show up and help you. The world's not going to come help you. Matter of fact, they will forsake you many times. But the body of Christ will be there. If you're plugged in, if you're part of the body. Verse 18. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah. And told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Naoth. So David did the right thing. 
even in the most difficult and confusing situation, he spent some time with a, you know, he understood the best thing I can do is go to the most godly man that I know. Samuel. When things are difficult times, you go to the one that God uses in your life, that godly man, that godly person who can help you to work through these difficult, confusing situations in your life. We can imagine David pouring out his heart to this prophet. Samuel, you've you got to bring some clarity here, man. I remember you came and anointed me. You said I was going to be king, and look at what's happening. How, is, how does that match up? How does that line up here? It doesn't line up to me. And Samuel's saying, God's time is not yet. Why is it so hard? Does God want me dead? No, 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 David. God does not want you dead. He, he has anointed you for king. Do not forget what God has told you through me. This is what his plan is for your life. And that is it. Even though everyone else wants to kill you and think you're going to be on the edge of being killed, you're not going to die. But why is the Lord allowing this? David, you're being prepared for the work that God wants to do in your life. And it's through these difficult times, these valleys, that is actually forming you to do great things for God. That's what Samuel would say. But they stayed here in Naoth. The Naoth, the word means, Hebrew's word means residence. And it speaks of Samuel's home or being in this area, which, you know, it's, it's a landmark, obviously, in Ramah. And it's mentioned and associated with the Ramah because it's in that area. But when you look at what God has done here, and he's used, you know, a prince I have a prince who pleads my case. I have a bride who saves my life. And I too know the prophets. The prophets are going to help you, helped David through this difficult time. God will protect you through the prophets. In this case, the prophet is Samuel. But who is our prophets? Who's going to help you and I as the prophet? Right here, the book of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, will help you. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, the Jeremiah, Ezekiel, just walk with them, read the scriptures, allow them to minister to your heart through difficult times. Read through then how the prophets and the, the scriptures will minister to you in those late nights and early mornings as you study the word. These prophets will help you in your walk. When the enemy pursues you, when the enemy is on hot pursuit against you, read the prophets and see how God helped them. And he will help you. Verse 19, now it was told Saul, saying, take note, David is at Naoth in Ramah. So he's got people, everyone, looking out for the king. Obviously, he had, you know, snitches everywhere. And then Saul sent messengers to take, to take David, take two messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. <laughs> I love this. God says, okay, you group of guys, you're going to go as messengers. You're going to go deliver it, but you're going to take David. You're coming. You're going to grab him. You're going to take him. you got to go find him. But what they didn't expect, Saul didn't expect, neither did these messengers. These evil messengers with an evil message 
from an evil man, look what's going to happen here. These messengers get there and they see God at work through the prophets, the school of prophets. That was probably the school of prophets that was located there in Ramah. That's where they, the prophets stayed and probably lived and, and ministered. And, and, they, and when they get there, what are they doing? Well, the word pro- prophecy does not mean just telling, foretelling events in the future. No, no. It can also mean to sing songs and praise God. So when they get there, there's a worship going on. And these guys come in to get David. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God is moving as the prophets are worshiping. And Samuel is just leading them and probably with them and leading them to worship and praising God. The Spirit comes and moves their hearts from getting David to kill David and bring him back to changing their hearts and said, we're not touching David. And they go back. What does Saul do? He sends the next group. You go up there. And the same thing happened. Instead of seeking to kill David, they turned around and they started to, 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 they were filled or touched by the Spirit of God and they started praising God and worshiping God and change of heart. And no, I'm not touching David. And sure enough, the third, the third time, This group came up. Saul didn't get the message, obviously, that something was going on there. There was a a revival or worship going on there. And so when he sent this third group to go up and do this, this third set of messengers, they came back. Three times. So God literally protected David. By the Spirit of God interceding by coming upon them and began to prophesy. It reminds us of John 7. We read that the Pharisees and and scribes sent soldiers to arrest Jesus. And when the soldiers returned empty-handed, the leaders asked, Something happened. The soldiers answered, what, what do you mean? What something happened? What happened? And the soldiers, what? No man spoke like this man. The Spirit of God moved in, in, to a point from where they were going to go get Jesus to say, we're not touching him. There's a change of heart. They intercede a change of heart of the person. And I, every time I see and remind myself and I read this, these scriptures, it reminds me, even if the enemy does come, Pray for the fact that God is going to send His Spirit to change the wicked heart of those that are coming against you and me. Because God could lead them right to worship you. God in change of heart. If someone's having a struggle with someone, pray for their, uh, for their salvation. Pray for the God's interceding. Why? Because if they get saved, they get change of heart, they will not turn and go against you. Lots of times we'll pray, just pray, Lord, you know, get me out of this legal issue, and why are they suing me, and why is this, and all these really bad things, and you just want the situation. No, no, pray for the people who are coming against you, that they would get saved, and they have a change of heart, a change of mind, so that they won't even think about doing that again. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. No, no, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds when the Spirit of God is moving, 2 Corinthians 10.4. When someone's against you, pray for their salvation, pray, pray for God to intercede by His power, His Spirit, and have a change of heart. Verse 22, then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. So he said, he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Naoth in Ramah. So he went there to Naoth in Ramah. Then the spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on to pro- and prophesied until he came to 
Naoth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner. And he laid down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? So three groups come back with the same response, same experience, same situation. You won't believe what happened, king. So Saul decided he was going to go himself. He was going to pursue the king. He wouldn't call him the king, but he's going to go pursue David himself. But as he's going, notice in the scripture here, he, the Spirit of God touched him, came upon him, and went on and prophesied until he came to where Samuel and David and everyone was. He didn't have to get there to have that happen. The Spirit of God touched him on the way there. And by the time he got there, I can picture him as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, okay, God is just working and all of a sudden he's just being humbled and his outer layers of all of this kingship is coming off him. All of the outer robes of representing of being king, he's down to his Gibbies, probably his underwear is out of that one coat of, of, of linen. Maybe he was completely naked. I don't think so. But he was at least in the language here of the fact that he was down to a humbled point of just his underwear. Absolutely humbled, absolutely stripped of any of authority, of kingship, anything. And we find that God will do that. He will do that in a person's life. The Spirit touches it. Leave David alone. My Spirit is stronger than you, and I will bring you right down to nothing. You will never win a battle apart from me or against David. See, we find that Saul was going to go deal with it himself. And the Holy Spirit is this fourth way that was used to protect David so that hands off, hands off, God's saying, Saul, hands off to my servant David. I'm in charge here, not you. The Spirit prompted Saul to do this as an expression of deep humility. Saul would not humble himself before God, and so God will find a way to humble him. But you have to think this through here, because it is possible that Saul stripped himself bare, but the Hebrew word here, naked, indicates that he was stripped down, but not probably down to his undergarments. But he wanted to, he was so humbled, he was so realized, he was so broken, and, and from, a, from a, a humbleness perspective, that he would find himself having to just be stripped. Now, I, I, I ponder on this a, a lot here the last few days because a person can be affected by the power of God. That people, you and I, can have this amazing experience, religious experience at times. People who go to these big music festivals can have a, an amazing experience. You may have gone to a crusade, and, and there was a tremendous experience at the crusade. But not surrendered to the power of God. People can have religious experiences, but not be changed by the power of God, re resulting in a changed life. They just responded emotionally out of an experience. But unless that experience changes one's life inside out, it's not a regenerating experience. It's a regenerating by the Spirit, a born-again experience. It's just an outward emotional experience. But here we find Saul was among the prophets. 
If you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, he expressed this astonishment, this religious enthusiastic. Remember, he was actually trying to play Samuel's role. He was an unspiritual man becoming a very spiritual moment in the spirit of, of, of what God was doing in his life. But now we're finding he's back with the prophets, but not in the right way, not in the same way that he was in the beginning. And I'll leave you with this. The Spirit of God comforts and confirms. Remember, when the Spirit of God is moving, he will comfort you and confirm you. By his word, he'll confirm. But as we see here, he also convicts and strips when necessary. The same Saul who at one time prophesies in the power of the Spirit in chapter 10 is prophesying again, but no longer a confirmation of his ministry in the beginning. It is now being humbled and realizes he's losing everything. And this is, finds him in very deep trouble. So let that there'll be lessons for us this evening. Don't chase experiences. We want the Holy Spirit to change and transform our minds and our life. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you, Lord, that you just can bring clarity and light to the things that we need to learn. And we too, Lord, don't want to just chase experiences, emotional, religious experience. We want a changed life, Lord. We want to grow and mature in our life with you. Yes, the beautiful experience of closeness, a beautiful experience of clarity, of hearing your spirit speak to us clarity and a wonderful experience of just just your peace you're the prince of peace a comfort you're the great comforter those things we want to experience because of our desire to seek after you with all of our heart and mind soul and strength we thank you for this evening and we thank you for your word in jesus name amen